Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by YCharts. Contact them and mention Animal Spirits for a 20% off your new purchase. Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. Hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. So last week, we recorded the podcast from Austin, Texas. And after that recording, we decided to hit the streets of Austin, and we used some of those tech scooters. What do you even call them? Scooters? Rideshare scooters. Well, they're like the elect- they're electronic scooters that are in some of the bigger cities now. I think they started in Silicon Valley and moved around a little bit. And you take out your phone, and you scan in the barcode, and they cost, I don't know, like two bucks a ride, basically. Very cheap. I felt like a giant tool riding it for the first time. You know what's funny? I'm I'm much more self conscious, I think, in public, and I have like the sort of social anxiety. Maybe social. Why would you get social anxiety around the ride shooting ride scooter? Anyway, the point is, I did not feel embarrassed, and you did. Yeah, maybe it's because I looked at you and I felt embarrassed for you. No, <laughs> but because <it> <laughs> <laughs> I got a picture of you, and no one got a picture of me. But I just felt a little weird, and I got more used to it. And we ended up using them all over the city, and we took took them around to some of the meeting places we had. And we drove them all the way to the University of Texas to check out the campus. And my question is, couldn't we... I mean, tech is making us so much more efficient with these things, but are they just going to all make us fat and lazy eventually, all these tech companies? Like, we could have easily walked to a lot of those places, but we took the scooters because it was kind of fun. And Well, I wasn't planning on bringing this up, but since you mentioned it, fat and lazy, my dad bod is fully formed. (laughs) Josh posted a video of us in Texas last week. It was my profile with a bunch of other people in the room. And the only thing, the only part of me that you could see was the tip of my nose and my belly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you pointed that one out. Uh, so, so maybe <laughs> so we could I, have been, uh, left a little more time no, wait, hold, and walked hold on. to places, there's, I guess. Hold on. There's a point coming. So I'm reading a book called uh, Measure What Matters. And in the book, is a chapter on MyFitnessPal, which I assume you've heard of because you're a fitness person. No, I've never heard of this. All right. Well, it's an app that was bought by Under Armour. And uh, you upload your calories and all that sort of stuff, what you're eating. So I just downloaded that app. I'm going to make a concerted effort to eat better. I'm going to do March for the Fall in this year. So anyhow, here's the point. I bought an Apple Watch. And I bought one because the last time I bought one, I returned it because what I wanted to get out of it was the ability to listen to podcasts without your phone. And the old all watch right. didn't have that. The new watch does. So you could just walk with your phone and your AirPods, which is terrific. So I'm on the phone with Robin yesterday. And I said, you know how I told you I wanted to eat healthier and start exercising? And she just started cracking up. <laughs> and then, so I started cracking up. But she, and so we stopped laughing. And she's like, okay, what's your point? I, so, so I told she, her I bought the watch. And so she has no faith in you. Zero faith. All right, we shall see. But I don't... So we saw these scooters all around town. And they, it seemed like they were everywhere. And there must have been, I don't know, five or six different kinds of them. How do they ever plan on making money on this stuff? Well, I love the new business model of, of tech companies is that to just make the consumer's life biz, uh, life better and we'll lose money yes. and uh, you spot us 30 years and don't worry about it. It's all good. I love it. And you know what? Let's just talk about this Uber IPO for a second. So Uber went public last week and it had lost more money than any other company prior to going public. 
And since the IPO, it has lost more money in market cap than any IPO ever in the first few days of trading. Is that true? I didn't realize that. So it, there were some stories I posted on Twitter yesterday in March. They were hoping for a $120 billion valuation. Yesterday, it was basically like $62, 63000000000 billion. So from their hopes to what it actually is now, it's almost been cut in half. Obviously, it didn't IPO at that. But some people finally sent us the story, why does Uber lose so much money? And the, the quick back of the envelope was... They did $12 billion in bookings last year. 8.2 of that went to drivers. I think maybe another billion went to drivers in terms of bonuses. And then they had a bunch of other things like taxes and stuff they paid. But then they broke out their operating costs. And so just simple things of running a business, sales and marketing, administrative costs, research and development, operations, and then this big other operating cost. And I guess running running a young, growing business because they have aspirations to really dominate transportation. Whereas I believe Lyft is really just focus on the ride sharing part of it. Uber wants to be in every facet of transportation and logistics. Right. So yeah, they almost call themselves a logistics company. So I think maybe the fact that they grew so fast, and maybe that's one of the good things about venture capital is that it allows these firms to just have this this huge, enormous growth in their early years and try stuff out. And I guess if it doesn't work, then oh well, a bunch of people are a little rich instead of a lot rich, I guess. I don't know. So with this article from Vox, one out of every 11,600 people in San Francisco is a billionaire. Does this number change after the IPO? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, housing is just going to keep getting more and more expensive there. But that I, is that is wild. How many? So so how many billions billionaires are in San Francisco? Okay, so so I did the quick math on this. I don't know how many people there are, but so one out of 11,600 is like 0.086%, which it's still a small number, but compared to the world, so there's 7.5 billion people in the world. There's like 2,200 billionaires. So that would be 0.000029% of the population. So there are almost 300 times as many billionaires in San Francisco as there are in the rest of the world. Wow. So yeah, I guess that's a lot. That's why it's just increasingly expensive to live there. But on the flip side, there was a CNBC article this week that showed that normal people beyond the billionaires are actually finally saving some money for retirement. And you wrote a piece about this, kind of showing that, hey, we finally got some good news in terms of retirement data, because it always seems to be terrible. You know what's great about this information, this data? It was not based on a survey. This came from Fidelity, which has, I believe, 30 million retirement accounts. Yeah, they have a huge 401k business. Seven and a half trillion dollars in assets. And you know what's funny? I got a lot of e- actually emails talking about all the bad stuff, but it's like we spend so much time right. talking about how how much trouble the system is in. Like I was just trying to shine a little bit of light on some positive stuff for once. Anyhow, oh, so, you, let's get- so you wrote the good stuff and people said, well, actually, look yeah. at all these data points. Okay. So I was shocked to learn that there are 350,000 people at Fidelity alone that have at least a million dollars in either their 401k and their IRA. And I went to to Fred and was really shocked to see how much money is in IRA and Keo accounts. Now, does this this does not include 401ks, correct? Right. This would be just individual retirement accounts. It's a huge number. $781 billion. And so we talked a little bit about this on our... We, we actually recorded another podcast yesterday with Jeremy Schwartz of Wisdom Tree, which you can expect next Monday in a new Talk Your Book about some of the Wisdom Tree strategies. 
And he talked about the massive growth in tax-deferred accounts, which went from being basically non-existent in the 60s and 70s to being a huge majority. So I think he said probably, what, 60% is tax-deferred, 40% is non-tax-deferred, something like that. I guess you'll have to tune in then, and maybe we will too. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a massive number. And this is actually like a step in the right direction, even though it's not perfect yet. So people don't, you don't get to $780 billion in retirement accounts from like giant exits on your business or anything like that. Like that's taxable money. This is money that people are diligently saving. So maybe there's a little bit of denominator blind this year, but hey, this is some good news. So let's get into the numbers. So the average participation rates in defined contribution plans is 73%, up from 65% in 2008. The average savings in terms of what the employee and the employer are contributing are at an all-time high of 13.5%. That's a pretty good number. It's fantastic. That's a big number. I was surprised by that. Uh, Let's see. The percent of employees holding 100% or 0% equity, so people that are either all in or all out, has gone down pretty much every single year. That shows that education is, is, is working. People are learning about how to invest. And the cumulative percent change for people that have been investing for at least 15 years, I'm sorry, since from 2009 to today, up 460%. Fantastic. Yes. So can we reasonably say that the Fed has manipulated retirement accounts higher in the last 10 years? I love it. Keep it coming. And I think that retirement accounts are one area where the behavior gap, I'm not going to say it doesn't exist, but I'm going to say that it is minimal. I think that by and large, people behave really, really, really differently in their retirement accounts than they do in their taxable accounts. So you showed the average participation rate in the defined contribution plans is like 74%. They also broke it down one step further and they showed average participation rates by automatic enrollment versus non-automatic enrollment plans, meaning you have to opt out of it basically. And the differences are huge. So in 2018 alone, it was close to 90% participation in the automatic enrollment versus 52% in the non-automatic enrollment. So it's almost like you have to do this for people and just make them do it and then they, it, it's a lot harder for people to opt out than to opt in. Uh, sounds like socialism. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's, it's the nudge thing. And these numbers have gone up. So it was in 2008, it was 80% for the automatic enrollment plans. And now it's close to 90. And actually, in the non-automatic enrollment plans, it's gone down. I think Thaler introduced this idea. And yes. people are adopting it. And it obviously works. It's such a no-brainer. Somebody just asked us on Twitter. I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. What, this is Michael Antonelli. He asked, what's the right amount to pay for babysitting? And I think Ooh. we're we're both we're both before the the stage. I'm just gonna no, throw we a use, we use babysitters, but I'm, oh, I'm guessing the the inflation in New York has got to be like at least a twenty percent premium. I don't know. Okay, so so go ahead. Okay, so hourly, I, I guess we pay probably twelve to fifteen bucks an hour, something like that. Well, so let me ask you a question about that. Is it hourly or is it a bundled deal? So I mean, listen, if you stay out for eight hours, obviously you have to pay a lot more. But does it really matter if you stay out for three hours or for five hours? I guess maybe it does in the sense that the person on the the, the, the babysitter has to know what to expect. It's kind of like waiters and waitresses and bartenders working off of tips. It's They do it that way because that's the way it's always been done. So we always kind of try to do it hourly, I guess. What if you had a, a permanent babysitter? Mm-hmm. The deal was this. You get, you get, I don't know, $65 a night, whether we're out for two and a half hours or whether we're out for six hours. Okay. Or is that not really fair? Eh, that might because you could take advantage, but I guess it depends what the well. Trust, listen, trust don't, be, don't be don't be an a hole. If you're out for six and a half hours, you give a little bit more. You're just trying to lower the expectations on your future babysitting person. My knee jerk number is fifteen dollars an hour. Yeah, I think that's that's probably about right. All right, so I tweeted last week that one of the reason why valuation comparisons are sort of silly 
is because in, in 1957, the S&P 500 was 425 industrials, 60 utilities, and 15 railroads. So no financials, uh, no materials, no tech, no healthcare. Then in 1976, it was 400 industrials, 40 utilities, 40 financials, and 20 transportation stocks. And that fixed structure was in place until 1988. And Charts put together a chart that we'll share in the show notes. This chart is pretty wild when you look at it. Yeah, but somebody made me rethink this. Why does sector composition really matter in terms of what you'll pay for valuation? In other words, if all this is equal, and of course it's not, but let's just assume that all this is equal and that railroad stocks were the growth stocks of, of, of the 1890s or whatever year it was, or the 1850s, I guess, and the earnings are growing the same and the multiple and, and, and the margins are the same and the, the economics of the underlying business are the same, wouldn't $1 of earnings be worth what it was then versus what it was now? And I have two responses after thinking about this a little bit. And maybe there, maybe this is confirmation bias because I, I think that it makes sense that multiples are higher. So maybe I'm just looking for the right answer. But here, here it goes. One is that companies are so much more transparent. Actually, three, three things. Companies are so much more transparent about um, their entire business and, and their operating margins and everything. So you would punish companies that don't disclose everything and you would be more skeptical about potential accounting irregularities. So those companies back in the day would deserve a lower multiple. That's one. Number two is that transaction costs have gone way down. There's way less frictions. So you would pay a higher multiple. That's number two. And the number three is that it really isn't all as equal because the scale of companies today and what they're able to do in terms of the efficiency of the business models and the margins, right? We've been at peak margins for the last 10 years. I do think that those companies deserve a higher multiple. Am I looking for answers to support my bias or are these legitimate answers or both? Here's my looking at both sides of this equation. And, and again, you can see this chart we created because what it shows is that in 1957 and even 1976, there wasn't very much diversity in terms of sectors in the S&P 500. Now, there, I think there, there really are. And we asked Y charts to create something for us on this, and they did, which was very helpful. And I think to your first point about why should the sector composition matter, maybe that's, that is the case where the, it's just about the risk premium in stocks and what, are the, what does the asset class deserve? So maybe that makes sense. On the other hand... What, maybe, wait, what makes sense? Because so they're more you're, diversified, you're just, they deserve a higher... Well, yeah, well, you're looking at them in the past and now as, well, it, the, stock as a, a, the stock market as a whole, what sort of risk premium does it deserve based on volatility and loss characteristics? And as we've discussed, that really hasn't changed much. So, the, the, so does the sector composition really matter in terms of... So maybe you can compare them. On the other hand... Now that we Wait, hold, hold on, hold on. Just stay, just stay with that for a second because that's really interesting because even though in the 50s, the S&P 500 was pretty much industrials, right? That's what it was. The If you looked at the price, the, the daily price action of stocks in the 50s versus stocks today, they don't look a whole lot different. Right. The volatility and loss characteristics are relatively similar. So who cares if you can start a company with 100 people now versus 100,000 back in the day because you still lost the same amount in the overall stock market when it went down. And the other side of that is maybe we do deserve a higher multiple today because things are so much more diversified. And the US economy especially is much more diversified in terms of the sectors and the types of companies. So I can honestly see it both ways. So, And what, what you don't see in this chart is the plunge protection team. And that's good for at least a 30% premium. <laughs> yes. But I mean, it's, no, it's honestly, interesting this, to this, think this about is a good, yeah, this how is a good the s has changed over time. Yeah, it's- so I guess I don't feel as certain as I did beforehand. Um, so thank you for whoever... I've, I'm sorry, I forget who, who pushed me on this. But I don't, maybe it's not so black and white. But I, I do think that there is good reason for why the multiple is, is higher than it was back then. It's one of those things that sort of makes your brain hurt as an investor because when you first start digging into the data on this stuff, 
you, you think you have it all figured out because, oh, I looked at this back test and if I just buy here and I sell here based on these multiples in the past, I should do very well. And now all that has kind of gone away in the last 20 years because everyone has that data and things have changed. And so it, it just kind of shows it's never quite that easy, I think. And, and so Jason Zweig wrote a piece on Ben Graham this past week in the Wall Street Journal. And he kind of said, what would the question was, what would Warren Buffett's teacher make of today's market? And the number that stood out is he's using the S&P 500 growth index and value index. And he said, at this point, growth has slightly outperformed value over the past 20, 25, 30, and 40 years as well, which is kind of insane. Let me ask the question that I'm sure there is an answer. I just, I don't know which index they're using. Are they using indexes that don't properly classify growth and value correctly? Well, I don't know. I'm guessing these are very like rudimentary growth and value concepts, but... I'm guessing that these are Russell indexes. Well, no, S&P 500 growth and S&P 500 value. I take everything back. But it's, I think it's kind of a similar framework. But here's another theory I'm trying to put out there on why this is happening. And maybe it's another reason why it's harder to look back at these factor relationships and take them back so far. The fact is that the S&P 500 companies are dying and leaving the index much faster than they did in the past. And newer ones are coming in much faster than they did in the past. Meaning does what? That, does that make it harder to make historical comparisons? Because in the past... I think histor- historical comparisons are always hard. But in the past, a lot of these companies really stayed in for a lot longer than they are now. And does that make it harder? Or is I guess this is kind of a... We're talking ourselves in circles here. But I don't know. It makes your head hurt a little bit. But do you buy into the fact that technology companies have sort of killed fundamental analysis. Oh, man. I don't know. That sounds so toppy. <laughs> I know it does. So <laughs> I'm Professor all in Demo- on value. Professor DeModeran was on Meb Favors podcast this week, and he talked about how he, he, he said Amazon basically broke all of his discounted cash flow spreadsheets that he created because you couldn't value them the same way. So he had to come up with a new way to value Amazon. But Amazon's not the whole market. True. But if you would have put ten thousand, if everyone would have put ten thousand dollars in the IPO, Amazon would be the whole market now. It's it's hard. I'm sure. I'm just sure there's a lot of f- fundamental bottom up stock pickers who are really questioning their methodology these days. And maybe they should. Maybe they shouldn't. I guess that's what makes this all interesting. Is what I'm saying. So uh, I got a question for you. Is I know you're not really a big user, but is Facebook a monopoly? See, I so the guy who wrote the New York Times op-ed this week, and I, he was one of the founders, which. I'd never even heard of this guy before, to tell you the truth. But he's Chris Hughes is one of the founders. He said, it's time to break up Facebook. Honestly, I don't know. It's one of those things. I'm kind of in the camp of, would it really make a difference if they did? Like, are they so entrenched now, even if they spun off Instagram and WhatsApp and all these other places? Does it, I mean, does it really matter? Didn't they have to sort of stop those those mergers and acquisitions when they happened to actually make any of this matter at all now that Facebook has 3 billion users or whatever it is? So this is a pretty wild data point. I didn't realize this was the case. 80% of the world's social networking revenue goes to Facebook. Yeah. That- but you know what's kind of crazy to the point of value and growth and, and historical comparisons? Social media wasn't even a thing until right. very recently. Yes. I don't. I, I, mean, I mean, social media is like an asset class now. I, I, almost, I get the idea of wanting to regulate these companies, but I just don't know how... I don't know what you can do at this point because they're so big. And, and maybe it's hopefully it's the kind of thing where the public at large is going to have to be the one that, that sort of regulates them on their own and stops using them. But at their size, I don't know. And I'm, I'm not a user of Facebook, so I'm, I'm completely out of this. So when everyone is brainwashed by Facebook someday, 
I'm going to be like the last person standing in the zombie apocalypse. So that's all I'm saying. I don't know. It's all. It's all he's saying. I. I don't. Do you think it would actually help anything if they broke them up? Broke them up. I think. I really. I. I don't know. I feel like I'm so out of my depth here. When I'm like, I, I just. I Instagram don't know. I don't was know obviously one of the greatest acquisitions of this century, and if they had not been able to make that acquisition, I, I think they probably wouldn't be nearly as. They wouldn't have nearly as a big of competitive advantages as they do. But I don't. I. I don't know what exactly it would do, and I think regulating them at this point would actually help them because it would further ensure that no one else could touch them in terms of getting to that that size. So I think it's going to have to come from competition that just says, screw you, we're not selling to you. We're not selling out to you. We have spoken a lot about this recently, how speaking of social media as an asset class, obviously that was, that was a joke. Please do not take that seriously. But it, it really is reaching... We really are scraping the, the bottom of the barrel in terms of uh, stupidity. And what is being, not just social media, but just news in general, I suppose, in terms of the articles that are being written and the tweets that are being sent, at this point, it is deliberate trolling. And they're actually getting very good at it. So for instance, here was a tweet from last week or from earlier this week. Despite work-life balance buzz, disconnecting to spend time with your kids could severely impact your future wages. (laughs) (laughs) Are you sure? Like they're begging to be dunked on because that's what drives eyeballs and that's what drives revenue. Yes, everyone. Yes, anger and outrage is like that's who they they would like but, to get. But it's so easy to give terrible personal financial advice, and there was an article in USA Today that got a lot of eyeballs. Yes, they showed Americans spend an average of almost eighteen thousand dollars a year on non essentials, and they showed things like restaurants, drinks, takeout food, impulse purchases, ride sharing. But look what impulse purchases. It's a T-shirt. Like, is that yeah. not essential? Is personal is grooming? Personal, personal grooming. grooming is not essential. What? Sorry. And they have cable on here. I'm saying cable is definitely essential. And excuse me, my head will not shave itself. Imagine that is definitely essential. I'm sorry. Yeah. So it, there's there's this. I, I feel like things things always swing too far in either direction. And obviously, there's a need for better financial advice for people these days. But the the spend shaming, I don't think is very helpful. And especially when it comes from rich people who who spend whatever they want on things, I don't think that's no one, no one's ever going to listen to that advice. I have bad news. Okay, we're only in the top of the second inning of the shame spending game. It's yes, early. I'm sure we are. Yeah, I just can we move on from the coffee latte thing? Like, okay, we get it. Don't spend five dollars on it. We yeah, we get it. If you make thirty percent a year on your money, you'll be a millionaire. Okay, survey of the week. So Schwab did a survey of their ETF investors and. They put in a chart in here that shows how long ETFs are typically held. And they broke it down into like one to four weeks, one to three months, four to five months, six to 11 months, and then up to one, two, three, and five years. And they found that close to 60% of their ETF holders are held, our ETF investments are held for less than a year. All right, two thoughts. I actually buy that number. I think that's probably reasonable. But I think people have no idea how long they hold an ETF. Probably true. But why would that be reasonable? Meaning that amount of turnover? No, reasonable, not in the sense that that's appropriate. Reasonable in the sense that that's a good estimate for how long people hold their ETFs. Oh, that's true. So only f- there was 9% of people who said they hold their ETFs for five years or more. Only I also 15% think that's percent actually kind of right. Two to less than five years. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's a double-edged sword of ETFs is that they're much easier to trade. There's basically zero commissions on them and you can do it with a click of a button. And so jumping from one to the next, is, it just makes it too easy almost to, to do it. Have you ever had breakfast in bed? I can't say that I have. Like on one of those little trays? Yeah. 
with like a flower on it and a mini yeah. vase and an orange. No. I'm so I, uh, I think I saw a tweet about this or something. And it just got me thinking like, who has breakfast in bed? People in romantic comedies. Yeah, that's it, right? It sounds actually t- incredibly unappealing. I can't imagine wanting to eat breakfast in bed. Yeah, you, and you get crumbs all over your bed. It's just a terrible idea. Yes. So before we get to listen to questions, I made a fantastic purchase. Okay, what did you get? So we have a doggy door. So my dog is in and, the, in and out of the house all day, which makes me very, very happy because we were cooped up in an apartment she was for way too long. But the downside to that is that she's bringing dirt in and I have all wood floors. And so it's getting very dirty very quickly and I've been vacuuming every day. So what we got was a Roomba, which is like the iRobot vacuum. Oh, does it work? Not only does it work, it really works. Okay, because my wife was actually asking about that this week. Okay, it's fantastic. It's not cheap. It's there about $400, but worth it because if you say all the time, and I couldn't agree with you more, that's you spend money on things that you don't want to do. Like you value right. your time. How much time do you want to spend uh, vacuuming? So every day I use it and I dump out like a a pound of dirt. Wow. Okay. And it's it only runs when it needs to? Or is it constantly moving? No, you, you you press a button. You could do it. You could like automate it. It's it's really really okay. Because we really good. we have like a, a cordless handheld vacuum that we use, and I wrote about it this week actually. About that's like one of the biggest purchases you need it when you have kids because my kids like there's constantly crumbs everywhere in my house, and I said if we had an odometer on it, it probably would have like a hundred thousand miles at this point because we use it multiple times a day. So I might have to um, pull the trigger on that one. So this kind of goes into one of the listener questions we got about spending. So someone said, you mentioned several times that you open new credit card accounts to get the free points and rewards that come with it. My question is, what do you do with the old credit card accounts that you no longer use? Do you cancel them, leave them open with no balance? And I'm just curious how many credit card companies you have done this with. I think the typical advice would be to keep it open and just do like one purchase a year on it because the more credit you have, the better your credit score but after a while, it gets kind of tedious to keep track of them. So I don't know how many times I've done this. I've probably opened, I'll call it 15 to 20 credit cards in my lifetime. And occasionally, I'll get a note saying, you haven't used this in a while. If you don't use it, you're going to cancel it. But there are some that I will keep open for a while just because I like to keep that, have that credit just in case. But And I, I've, I don't really care which credit card companies to use. What do you do with your old ones? I don't have old ones. I don't really have a million credit cards. And plus, I've been getting denied lately because I have <laughs> too many, actually. I forgot to mention this when we were talking about the scooters. So in a book that I just finished this week called Trade-Off, which again talks about high fidelity versus high convenience, that products have to either be really convenient in terms of they're easy to use or they're very cheap versus high quality and typically expensive. And one thing that and he talks about the fidelity belly where things are neither neither convenient nor really high quality and Segway fell in that in that bucket. And I it got me thinking about the scooters. Like Segways were just way too early and way too expensive. They were three thousand dollars a piece. Yeah, but you you look like ten times a bigger tool on a Segway than you do on one of those scooters. Hundred percent true. Right. Amazon used them in their warehouses and eventually they got shut down. And I had more to say about it, but I forgot to take notes. All right, anyhow, uh getting back to the listener questions. Okay. I would like to go ahead. Oh, do you want to take this? Yeah, sure. I mean, you are the designator listener question reading reader. Everyone knows that. 22 years old and have been fortunate enough to max out my contributions to a Roth IRA. And instead, have been taking out $5,500 in student loan debt at 5.5% interest. 
doing this to take advantage of long-term compounding and I'll still pay off my student loans and max my contributions in the 10 years after graduation. Is this a good idea? Should I, should I be entirely focused on paying off student loans? This is an interesting little arbitrage they're trying to pull off here. I, I guess if you, if you can manage the finances of saving and also paying off your debt at the same time, and you're okay taking on that debt, I, I guess that makes sense to try to leave it there. And I guess the Roth offers some flexibility, but I'm, I'm kind of good either way on this one. I would like to apply a dollar cost average strategy with my cash position. Is there a recommended allotment size and time horizon for a Roth IRA? For example, if it's $100,000 divided by X allotments and buying every X weeks or months, what's the ideal X plus Y? We know that lump sum is right. So if that is the case, then the less allotments you have, the better off you'll be. We know that to be true from a math standpoint, but obviously this is a not math-related question. So I would just say, I, honestly, does it really matter if you do it in three or four or five? I would say maybe 24 months is too much. 12 months is probably too much. I don't know what the right number is. I would say just whatever you're comfortable with. Just The most important thing is that you make a decision, you stick to it. It's horseshoes and hand grenades. Like Close enough is good enough for this. Like You're never going to get it perfectly. So pick the, pick the time horizon you can live with and stick to a plan and then just don't deviate from it because you're going to want to depending on what the market does over time. Okay, why does everyone say it's so difficult to beat the S&P 500 index? Asking as it looks like a retail investor with a buy and hold strategy who puts in a little time following just a few companies and most importantly, ignores all the crazy and costly market movements. Shouldn't I always be able to beat the indexes if I do this? Your thoughts? This is one that we have never gotten before because we spend a lot of time talking about how hard it is to beat the market and more importantly, how really unnecessary it is to even attempt to beat the market in terms of just what are you trying to get out of investing? If you're trying to uh, you know, increase your, your purchasing power or maybe even uh, um, do a lot better than, than inflation, that's why you invest. I don't think anybody is going to look back on their life and, and be upset that they didn't beat an index of stocks. But anyway, here's the, po- here's the point. Why is it so hard to beat the S&P 500 index? It's because so few stocks beat the S&P 500 index. There's a great study by is it Longboard Capital Management or Longboard Asset Management showing that I think two-thirds of all Russell Russell 3000 stocks failed to beat the benchmark. So it's just that simple. The, the indexes are led by the biggest gainers, think Microsoft and Apple and Facebook and the companies that add up billions of dollars. And if you're not in them, it's really hard. So that I think is probably the simplest reason why beating the market is so difficult because the winners are so concentrated in just a few stocks. And my whole thing is there's nothing special about index funds. They're simply, they have low turnover, they're tax efficient, they're low cost, and they don't do a whole lot, which is you know, something that a lot of investors have a hard time with. So th- there's nothing special about that strategy, but... That's a good point. You could buy and hold 30 stocks, 20 stocks, whatever it is, and be just fine. Maybe you'll beat the index, maybe you won't. But I think Ben's point is that the more you interfere with your portfolio, whatever you're doing, your side of your portfolio, probably the worse off you'll be. And most professional investors don't beat the indexes either. So if you look at any of them, it's it's probably in the over the long term, three, five, ten years, it's probably in the seventy to ninety percent range that don't beat it. So even if the pro- professionals can't do it, it's pretty hard for a novice to do it as well. Even if you're going to have take a longer time horizon. Okay, uh, recommendations for this week. What do you got? What do you got? All right, I finished where the crawdads sing when we traveled to Austin last week. On your recommendation. I really liked it. Not something that I usually read, the type of genre, I guess, but 
it was really, really good. And it's one of those books that gets better as it goes along, I feel like. I think so, too. And it sounds like Reese Witherspoon is going to turn it into a movie or a TV show, maybe. Probably a movie. It's, I think that'll do really well. I started watching The Comedian based on a recommendation from Anthony Jeselnik, who we mentioned last week. He was on a podcast with Bill Simmons, and he said he watches it once a year. And it was this, it was this documentary from, about Jerry Seinfeld and another up-and-coming comedian, comedian in like 2001. It's really like the camera that was shot on is really kind of not very good, but it shows Seinfeld working out on his jokes at some of the places that we've been to in New York. And it was kind of interesting to see him bomb. And he's going up there with his notebook and before jokes are formed. Like we, when you see Seinfeld, you see him after he's tried these jokes out for years and years. And it showed him go up there and totally forget the punchline and bomb in front of people. And they were, they were like heckling him. And he's like, yeah, I kind of deserve it. And it was very interesting to see him putting that work in. And really, like he's like, I, I don't know. I lost my train of thought. And I don't know where I was going with this joke. And so it's on Netflix. It's not very high quality, but it's pretty good. Listen, I can, I can empathize with Jerry because I often lose my train of thought on this podcast. That's true. <laughs> Quite a bit. Okay. And finally, so I've been watching Game of Thrones, obviously. A lot of people leaning in are mad. I honestly don't care because I never got invested in any of the characters. I was never like one of those fanboys for it. I just always thought it was a cool show. And like, I don't care how it finishes. But the other day I posted a meme because the S&P 500 was getting torched. And I posted a, a picture from the latest episode of the dragon letting stuff on fire. Didn't say anything about the episode. I was just making a joke about uh, stocks being down. And I must have had 10 people say, hey, spoiler alert. What are you doing? Come on. No, you you come on, sir. Can you can you really can there be spoiler alerts anymore? Like no, that's half no. that's half the fun is the memes from it, and I don't say like what's going to happen or who dies or anything like that. No, no, not fair. If you, if you're watching Game of Thrones, you watch it live or you don't watch it at all. And I don't even watch Game of Thrones, but that's the rule. Or if so, we one of the episodes a few weeks ago we had to DVR it, and I stayed off the internet, like I stayed off Twitter the whole day because I knew people would ruin it for me. So here's the deal: if you, uh, in terms of spoilers, what's the correct amount of time? With Game of Thrones, it's instant. There are no spoilers. Too, too bad. Yes. With a movie, like a highly anticipated movie, all right, you got 24, 40, you got 48 hours. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Or, or you just, if you know, you want to know for sure and not have it spoiled, then just don't look and yeah, stay if, away. You can't be mad at somebody that spoils it for you unless they go out of their way to be an asshole about it. But uh, yeah. All right. I started watching, I haven't finished it, just like, actually, I started watching this a few weeks ago while I was putting furniture together. Our Planet on Netflix. It's sort of like uh, Planet yes. Earth. We've been putting that on for our kids lately. My, okay, did you my see, two-year-olds love it. Did you see the walrus scene? I don't think so. Okay. It was really heartbreaking. And I hope I'm not virtue signaling right now. But there was walruses like falling off a cliff because of, I guess, their geography shrinking. Oh, I mean, yeah, I saw a lot of the stuff that, with the ice melting, but I didn't it see that. It was really, really terrible to watch. How do, they, how do they get some of those shots so close? I don't understand it. Is it CGI? It might be CGI. <laughs> I don't know, but it's, it's, it, it is really well done. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I recommend Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals between Philly and Toronto. If you haven't seen that yet, sorry, spoiler, t- Kawhi won it. Yeah, it was a buzzer beater. Measure What Matters, a book by John Doerr who is a big name in venture capital. He talks about this thing called OKR, which is objectives and key results. And it makes a lot of sense. And I would love to be able to implement something like this in my life because I think I really need it. I just don't know how practical it is. Are you going to use it for your fitness goals? Well, I did actually, today was the first day I started entering my lunch, my calories into my fitness pal. 
And I feel like honestly, for for my mindset, if I don't hold myself accountable and actually enter it, I'm not going to do it. Okay, can I give you some like, advice? I have, I have such. I am. I have. I have no. I have no willpower. No. Can I offer? Can I offer you some advice in terms of like making this an investing parallel? Please do. If you have to like count your calories every day, it's never going to work. Why? Like from from a behavioral standpoint, like you need to just figure out a few meals. You need to automate it like you automate your investing. So figure out a few meals that like re- hit your calorie levels instead of eating something different every day and then trying to count because you'll never get it. So pick a few Counter- meals that but, yeah, but counterpoint. I know I can't automate my eating. I just can't. Okay. So I think that if I write it in or if I enter it in, then I will. I don't know. I don't have the answers. Obviously, I mean, for goodness sakes, look at me. <laughs> Uh, All right, we'll we'll get a progress update every few months from you. No, but you know what? This is so investing parallels. You should not talk about your investing in public because for all the reasons we've discussed, I feel like if I talk about my eating weight good, loss yeah, in public, it's a good thing. That's a good way to hold myself accountable. Yes, I definitely agree. So I'm not saying that I'm going to look like you, Ben, but maybe I won't look like me. <laughs> okay, get down to your natural weight. Uh, okay, a few housekeeping items. Monday, we will have an episode out of Talk Your Book with Jeremy Schwartz from Wisdom Tree. And then we're going to start our next... We'll have another Talk Your Book the week after that on another Monday. And then the following Monday, we're going to do another Rekindled and we're going to do Where Are the Customers Yachts. So if anyone wants to read along with us, we know we got a lot of good feedback on the big short Rekindled and people said, give us a heads up next time. So in a couple weeks, we will be doing a Rekindled of Where Are the Customers Yachts. If you never read it, Highly recommend, but the beautiful thing about that book, among many beautiful things, is that it's only like 150 pages. It's fairly short, and it's one of the best written investment books I've ever read. And it was written in like the, I don't know, 40s, 50s, way back when. Wait, but it's 18, 18 or 19? I don't know. <laughs> right. Okay. Send us an email, uh, animalspiritspod at gmail.com, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.